When entering the online environment, even the most casual user often experiences the requirement to enter personal data to access content, conduct banking, or make a purchase. It could be as little as our name and email address, or highly detailed personal information. But who manages and stores the data? In this episode, I'll speak with Ruli Elezarov, co-founder and president of Gigya, a customer identity management platform used by major corporations to manage customer files, preferences, opt-in, and consent settings. Started in 2006, Gigya's founders saw the significance consumers placed on their personal online information. So they developed software solutions to help companies manage customer data and help transform website visitors into known and engaged customers. Along the way, the company raised significant funding from high-profile sources such as Intel, Benchmark, and the Mayfield Fund. In September 2017, SAP, a multinational enterprise software company, acquired Gigya, which now manages well over a billion customer files. We'll discuss Ruli's entrepreneurial journey, his shift from becoming an architect to running a software company, his book, The Digital Identity Crisis, plus his insights into securing personal identity information and building customer trust. Ruli, welcome to our podcast series. Thank you. And I would like to thank also Deborah Cohen and Neurotech for bringing me in. Happy to have you. And I'm sure our listeners are going to absolutely love to hear your story. As I did the introduction, besides being a successful entrepreneur, you're co-founder and president of Gigya, and you're also an author. And for anyone who's interested, the book, The Digital Identity Crisis, How the Explosion of Personal Information is Transforming Technology, Business, and Society, the book is a fascinating read. You went very much in depth into the world of online identity. So if you're interested in the subject, I highly recommend the book. It was a terrific read and gave you a lot of great depth and detail, but spoken in a plain language. So I thought it was terrific. And by the way, as part of the book's introduction, you describe your career path. You graduated from Pratt Institute with a Bachelor of Architecture degree, and then says you started working in the profession, and you describe feeling limited by architectural design. So how did you make go from making tangible structures to working in a digital environment? What was the allure? So maybe I'll begin with the bottom line, which is as far as I see it today, I'm an architect. Ah. Because I see architecture in a wider way than just building houses. For me, architecture studies work was a fascinating thing. Yet I found myself after graduating needing to, you know, be definite about how I think people will interact with what I designed and have no way of uh, adjusting it accordingly. And then I found out that on the internet, another like space for people to spend time and live, you can do that. You can design, observe, and refine. So I was uh, attracted to that, and, and that's what I do now. Now, you mentioned you when you began heading in that direction, uh, obviously before you started Gig, you started working in the industry. I know you were on the board of uh, Metacafe, you were a general manager at Smart Shopper. So you had several positions that got you to Gigya. And I'd like you to talk about the journey. What brought you to Gigya and the product and the services that you were going to provide? What was the aha moment that you said that, gee, the world needs what I'm going to make? I think that back in the day, because we're talking about, you know, the earlier days of the internet before Gigya, Gigya was founded in early 2007. So we're talking even before that. It wasn't so obvious for people that have my type of background, which is design, experience, human experience, that we can call it, to be the product managers. It was mostly people with technical background, like the good engineers became the product managers. 
And I came with a different type of background around the user experience. After transitioning from architecture to tech, I began as a designer. But then I was involved with the product and was able to kind of uh, put myself into the, you know, the product managers with bringing up all kind of aspects that relate not to what technology can do or the technology we develop or the companies I worked with initially, but to what actually the end customer or the end user is looking for and how they can enjoy such a technology. So it's like taking the other perspective on the same thing. So now Gigia, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, what defines the company I saw was that you provide customer identity management. And so was that a space that was missing in the market that you found? Actually, I think the story of Gigia is interesting for, especially for entrepreneurs that in the beginning of their path, we began with one thing and we ended up with a different thing. Mm -hmm. The idea that there is a relationship between an organization and the end user or customer is not so obvious online because whenever you go to a website, unless you are identified, they cannot create ongoing relationship. They cannot know who are you if they treat you all every time as a guest. So obviously there is the concept of creating an account and logging in and then you begin to create a relationship with a company or the organization. And that's what we facilitated, but we did it in a way that helps people keep their privacy. So the organization is always able to tell the user what they know about them and let the user control this data. So that, that's what we brought beyond just offering these mechanics of registration, login, and storing the user data for the organization. So that's customer identity management. And when we founded Gigia, we believed that we saw, and it wasn't obvious back then in 2007, that people will extend their lives in their lives into. And the idea of identity and who you are is really significant. And eventually, we ended up offering a large organizations, enterprises, a solution to be transparent, create relationship with their customers in a transparent and friendly way. But And as you said, so that's not what you necessarily set out to do, but rather you began to identify and see there is an opportunity here, a space in the market that's not being filled. And I guess you saw a way of improving the relationship of an entity, whether that be a major corporation, because I know you, you now service many of the largest leading enterprises in the world that help manage that relationship in terms of the data. And you talk about transparency, which kind of leads me to answer the question of trust. Is somebody trustworthy? Are they acting ethically? A lot of that comes down to being transparent about what you're doing with the data, right? Exactly. And I think a, a lot of business people begin to realize it too, that people will choose companies or that, that are easy to and fun to work with. You know, simplicity was everything. Today, trust becomes everything. So we believe that consumers will go to the places they trust. Of course, it needs to provide a great experience too. But the main challenge today is to create trust with your customers. And trust is, I think it's boiled, boiled down to two things, which by the way, GDPR, the regulation in Europe around privacy, is these two factors. One is transparency and two is control. So I want to know what you know about me. I want to be able to say, please delete that or don't use this for advertising only to serve me in the product, etc. So trans and transparency and control. 
And look, I'm, I'm obviously an online consumer, and we, we, and I say we in society in general, we tend to give away our identity rather willingly and have an expectation and a trust that will be used for the specific transaction or within the relationship we agree to. But then we find ourselves being assaulted online based on the search that we did, based on the transaction that we had, based on what our buying habits are. So it's very disconcerting. And what I found refreshing, especially in looking at the book, there was one of the passages I read, and I'm going to quote you here. You've arrived at a time when true identity ownership or self-sovereign identity is feasible. But what will it take to make self-sovereign identity a reality? Yep. Okay, so I think self-sovereign identity, like many other concepts that are well thought of and developed and really smart, never caught up. I mean, it exists more than 10 years in very smart and idealistic people's minds, but never took off the idea that you own your identity, which means all the information about who you are and what you do. Uh, today, even with these regulations, like you don't know who is really following the, the organization, follows the regulation, and even if they say they do, you don't know if they're real about it. And you know what? Many of them, even if they want, it's too complicated for them to really tell you everything they know about you because they have so many websites and certain services they're using for, let's say, automated marketing and, and that stuff, and to even to tell you, even if they ask, if they want to, uh, what they know about you. Anyway, the solution could be if we turn things around and gave control to you and ownership to you. Picture a situation where each of us have, you know, on their phone, their identity, all their data, maybe backed up in, in a some decentralized way. It doesn't exist on a certain company server like Google or Facebook or even the government, only you can access it. And then you allow when you're connecting with a, any kind of organization from an online shop to a hospital in a foreign country, which you would like to, to give them access to some of your medical records, you control it. You say, okay, now I allow you to access this and this information for you know, a certain amount of time with expiration date. You control it and you give access to it. Mm. And then you don't even need to trust the organization to buy with the CDPR or any regulation because you're in control. It doesn't stay there later on. So that's the idea. Back to what I began with in terms of the adoption, that was the problem. So products around software and identity were developed, but nobody adopted it because, first of all, people as much as we, you and I and many others, about privacy are not giving the attention to, you know, find such a solution and, you know, install maybe an app or gives you control over your identity and helps you creating it and manage it. But even more important, the organizations are not keen to run and be the first to work with such a, um, you know, solution. So let's say a company like Amazon or any other one, the way that they manage their customers' data and for them to go through such a transition is definitely not a, a priority. So it's like a chicken and egg, but right. <laughs> not the, both the chicken and, and the egg are not taking action. So SAP acquired Gigia. I didn't mention it, but we went through a successful uh, acquisition with SAP, the huge German software company. And there I'm actually working on uh, on a project that I believe that will enable the adoption of this concept we're now discussing. That's amazing. And, and even today, under Gig and through SAP, I think you manage or you built identity-driven relationships with about 
It's over a billion customers. Do I have that number right? It's two now. Two billion. And you're doing this in, yeah. in coordination with major corporations around the world. Correct. So they, they are kind of outsourcing their user data to be managed by us for them. We, of course, never access it ourselves. We're just there to serve it. It's like Amazon AWS, you know, giving you the hosting services. But this is a more advanced solution dedicated to the idea of managing the customers. So overall, our client customers base reaches these staggering numbers. But, you know, the scale and the size is certainly very impressive. And in thinking through what you were just saying about, you know, identity and, and trust, all of those things that I think any entrepreneur starting a business today has to look beyond just as an example, if you're a software engineer, it's beyond just the coding of coming up with a good app. It's all about the user experience. It's all about how do you build trust and transparency into what you want from the customer so that they feel confident and comfortable in dealing with you. I think all of that has to coalesce if you're coming out with the new product, say. It goes even as far as just the idea of introducing a new brand to the customer is today much harder than, than it was before. I mean, I know many entrepreneurs that launched amazing products and the campaign, the ad campaigns were not working, even though that, you know, it was great campaigns and the products were amazing because people are more, much more cautious and tend to, to go with things they hear about. So you need to have a strategy around that. Uh, that's why I also believe that when you design a product, maybe you shouldn't begin with something that is too broad and complicated and try to begin with something minimal and very, very much focused. So it's easier to try you out or even to, the risk is also the time that, you know, when we talk about trust, it's not only that the organization will, will steal your data or do anything harmful. It's also you're trusting them not to waste your time and people are very careful today. There's so much offering with so many promises. They, they're cautious. This idea of beginning a relationship today is harder. So the more focused and simplified the offering is, the easier it is to gain the trust for beginning such a relationship. Yeah, that is so spot on. I mean, we, we all deal with that today. For as much leisure time we supposedly have in a modern society, we seem to never have enough time to do what's really important for us, right? So we want to do, certainly don't want to waste our time. Mm -hmm. And that brings me to an interesting question because we talked a little bit about entrepreneurs and, and people who are developing technology. So for those out there that are putting together their pitch deck and, the, and they want to raise some capital, what are some of the key elements that you would want to see in a pitch deck from a new technology startup? It's a good question. It sounds uh, like maybe something trivial, but it isn't because I do work with entrepreneurs and I see that many times people are following templates. Of course, you need to be exposed and learn from either, you know, seeing other presentations and see what other entrepreneurs do. But you have to digest everything, but you just cannot copy and the reason is that in this industry, in the tech industry, you have to be really spot on your own specific use case. And now I will just get directly to your question. And I will say first what the mistake that many entrepreneurs are doing in their presentation. Mm -hmm. The problem is that A, they begin with following certain templates and standards, and they're losing focus on the important questions of behind their idea. So first, you need to, as an entrepreneur, you need to assume that uh, the people you pitch to 
mainly the VCs, are very smart. You don't need to state the obvious. For example, you know, say getting into slides around market size when you talk about, I don't know, let's say just to make my point, that you have a solution to cancer. You don't need now to spend too much time on proving that this is a big market. Rather, you need to prove in this case that you really are able to solve cancer. So I think the most important thing in the pitch deck is to understand what's the biggest question that smart people will have in mind when you're pitching and focusing on that. Right. Interesting. You know, and you're right. I mean, if I was to Google pitch decks today, there's a hundred websites and there's a, a website that actually will show you some of the more famous pitch decks, but you, you really, it's, you're trying to sell something that's unique. So what is it about what you're doing that you're looking to pitch me on is not only unique, but prove to me that you can pull this off, that if I invest that you can come through with a product or a service or an app that fixes the issue that you've brought up. That's sort of what you're saying, right? Right. In some cases, by the way, it is the, the question is, you have an obvious maybe solution for a market that is really unique, like I don't know, the bees. What I'm saying in general is don't spend time on the obvious things. Spend time on what the people don't know. And another, I think, important point here is that a startup has to have kind of a, what I call a secret sauce, meaning... What did you think about that is so unique? The secret sauce can be something that, for example, people are not aware. You need to present something that is, is unique and will create the aha moment for the observer. Got it. Excellent. That's, you know, that's great advice. It was interesting. I had a, a conversation the other day with a, an executive at a very large company. And we talked about entrepreneurs. And he said, well, in his company, they call them intrapreneurs. Th those people within the organization that have an entrepreneurial spirit that they have started to invest in. You know, they don't want to necessarily see that person leave and take a good idea with them. And they're developing and opening more opportunities for people to stay and allow the organization to invest in them and their ideas. Uh, and I would think, you know, you ran a startup. You always probably prompted your people to come up with the next new idea. Question the status quo. Mm -hmm. What could we be doing better? And I also, I, I mention to people all the time, you know, there's a lot of opportunities if, if you're in the right organization and to grow and to develop and have a startup within a company. Yeah, so I think you're touching two interesting points. And uh, one of them is for the organization to enable uh, new innovation. And mm -hmm. when I'm saying new, it's like new products and, and actually, you know, initiate new things, not just innovation in relation to the existing solutions. And, you know, I have a lot to tell about it because now like, within SAP, I'm part of what is called SAPIO, which is a unit that is all about giving funds to internal entrepreneurs and letting them like, fly with their idea. But I think the other point that is related to what you mentioned is also important for, I think, the audience, maybe not the entrepreneurs, but people that are looking into working in tech. And my advice to people that are entering tech is not to choose the role, but to choose the company. And mm. because I'm, I'm saying it now, it relates a lot to, to what we discussed. I think there, there are organizations that are all about letting the people kind of direct themselves within the organization to the roles they would be best at. And there are companies that are just looking to fill in roles. Obviously, when you join a company, they expect you to take a certain role. But there are companies, I think we are such, that are open-minded to let you flourish according to where you are best at. 
And therefore, it doesn't matter which role you take when you enter. Our CEO, actually, Patrick Salier, mm-hmm. uh, he began as a salesperson and tree level and he grew and we asked him one day to be our CEO. And I have many more examples like that. So I think there are organizations that enable because they understand the value that people can bring when they do what they're mostly passionate about. And they just need to let them grow into these roles. And that's how people got traction so they could get promoted and grow within a company. So I think that was great insight. I appreciate you saying that really. I have a couple of last questions for you. First off, and I think you've already given it, so I'm not going to ask it again, which is what advice do you have for budding entrepreneurs? But is there anything else that you could sum up that you would want to say? I mean, we've talked about pitch decks. We've talked about ideas about and not focusing on the obvious. Is there anything else you want to mention? Actually, yes. When I talk to entrepreneurs, I focus on something else that I think is much less discussed and I think is very, very important for entrepreneurs to be successful. And I call it listening. Uh, the ability to really listen. Because the problem is that creative people, entrepreneurs mostly are creative people, many creative people from all areas, from artists to designers, etc., are focused around their art and what they love. And it comes a little bit in contrast with listening to the world outside. Obviously, today we all know that doing things like market research is critically important, but I think it goes way beyond just that, the ability to listen to the people you work with, your employees, your customers. And I have, you know, I can have, a, you know, a whole discussion around that. If you want, I can give you examples for, you know, certain situations where real listening really made a difference. Huh. But I think you know, overall, that's something that I wanted to, to raise. That's an excellent point. And I, you know, again, as somebody who along the years have found myself tripping over my own feet, so to speak, where I would come up with my own idea not listen to others, only to find out that I was heading in the wrong direction. So, you know, listening is such an important task and being part of a great leader also. The other question I have for you is, what one word describes who you are? Well, that's a tough one. I think maybe a listener. A listener, okay. Yeah, that would be the word. A listener. Okay. So really appreciating yeah. feedback and appreciating input. And, and actually, you know, I have to tell you, it's not just the the listener, it's also the speaker. And I think being engaged with people and being a good listener brings people closer to you. Completely agree. <laughs> That's the best way to live and work. This has been absolutely great. Again, I'm going to mention your book only because I, given what's happening in technology today, I thought it was just a great contemporary read, and that is The Digital Identity Crisis, How the Explosion of Personal Information is Transforming Technology, Business, and Society. Really, thanks so much for being our guest. Thank you very much, John. When Gigi was founded in 2006, the significance consumers placed on identity management was not that obvious. As really described, they created programs for companies beyond the mechanics of registration, login, and storing user information by providing transparency and keeping users in control of how their data is utilized. In a way, they were building trust, which has evolved into a critical reason consumers will choose one company over another. Unfortunately, the ability to gain trust has never been more challenging. People are wary of new products and don't want you to waste their time. Ruli suggests that if you're developing a new product, avoid making its use too broad and complicated. You're more likely to attract users with a narrowly focused approach that can be broadened once you've established your brand. His advice when pitching funding sources like venture capital firms is, don't spend time stating the obvious. 
Spend time on what people don't know, especially how you intend to solve a problem, and demonstrate your ability to realize your objectives. Another critical point is how entrepreneurs can trip themselves up by submissively following standardized templates. When developing your pitch deck, think about the crucial questions smart people will have on their minds and make that your focus. He emphasized the need to express what makes your approach unique, that secret sauce they're not aware of, and create that aha moment for them. But maybe you're not ready to take the plunge and become an entrepreneur. Still, as Ruli said, many companies, especially in the tech market, promote the concept of intrapreneurship and will facilitate and fund startups within their company. So focus your attention on working for the right company. And yes, you'll be hired in a particular role, but such organizations are often open-minded. They will let you flourish based on your ability and ideas. And remember, be a good listener. Of course, your passion and creative instincts will capture and focus your attention. But you need to remain open and listen. And listening is not just hearing, but absorbing and engaging with others, employees, the people you work with, and customers. Being a good listener will enhance your knowledge, broaden your focus, and enrich your relationships. Thanks to Ruli for sharing his experiences and valuable insights. This podcast is executive produced by John Rebecki and New York Institute of Technology in conjunction with the School of Management and the Office of Strategic Communications and External Affairs. The Director of Professional Enrichment and producer of this podcast is Deborah Cohn. Our marketing and social media strategist is Petra Shantaraga. Our audio editor and mixer is Brian Falk from Abacus Entertainment. Special thanks to Constance Talatia and Paulina Lamanier for all their support. Until next time.